Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. billion adults around the world do not have access to financial services. Our guest today is Sophie Blackstad, CEO and founder of Hive Online. Hive Online is a blockchain-based community finance platform rolling out to unbanked communities across Sub-Saharan Africa and Central America. Prior to starting Hive Online, Sophie spent nearly 30 years building and transforming technology and businesses for international banks. She advises the United Nations, central banks, commercial banks, and NGOs on applications of distributed ledger technology and digital assets, and chairs the Edinburgh Futures Institute's Finance and Fintech Industry Advisory Panel. In this episode, we learn about Sophie's entrepreneurial journey starting Hive Online, lessons she's learned, challenges on the horizon, and plans for the future. Hi, Sophie. Thank you so much for joining the Impact Drivers podcast today. It's a real privilege to have you on the show. Well, hi, Jen. Thank you very much indeed for having me on. It's a great pleasure. Great. So could you share what problem you set out to solve when you started Hive Online? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I spent most of my career before I started Hive Online um, building international banks. And as part of that, Um, I was responsible for delivering infrastructure into several African countries while I was working for Citigroup. And I really started to see how difficult it is for the financial industry in Africa to reach rural customers um, and and how the the products that banks produce don't really help them that much. Um, And then during my career, I was reading up on economics and really began to understand a bit more about the digital divide and the the financial inclusion divide um, in developing economies, and particularly in Africa. Um, so the, the problem I'm solving is is really the fact that small businesses and communities of small businesses who don't have access to financial services can't access the things they need. They can't build trust um, because they have no digital records. They can't prove who they are, um, and they can't prove they're reliable. So the problem we're really solving is one of trust. Great. Yeah. And the numbers are pretty staggering. I um, think I saw on your website that 66% of adults are completely excluded from the financial system. Is that an accurate or current statistic? Yeah, that's right. So 66% of of, of 15s in in sub-Saharan Africa are outside of what we would describe as the financial system. Um, And that means that they have to resort to informal structures instead um, just to, to make life work, basically, and especially to make businesses work. Um, and, you know, as I said, when my experience in banking was that the, the products and services that banks have just don't necessarily apply to, to poor rural communities. Um, and then you, you add, that, add to that the logistical challenges of, of reaching rural communities in Africa, um, where there's very little infrastructure in, in many countries, and especially in rural areas. Um, so it's, it's it's a question of accessibility. Um, but, but something interesting I find is when you look at the World Bank statistics, um, the people's reason for being excluded from the financial system are not just about logistics and wealth, although that's a big part of it. About 25% of people who don't use formal financial services don't use them because they're not relevant to them. And I think that's really interesting. Oh, interesting. Can you expand on that? What is that? What does that mean? 
Well, so when you're, you know, when you're facing problems with logistics and and um, and there's, you know, there's also this wealth divide. A, a formal financial services product like a bank account, which is quite expensive to to a poor person in Africa, um, can look as though it's just it's just not worth the effort. It's not worth the logistics. It's not worth mm. getting. And and those products actually don't solve the immediate business problems that they face. And the immediate business problems that, that most of these communities face are cash flow management, um, especially in agriculture, which has very bumpy cash flow, and, and inventory management, which is really also a cash flow problem. Right. Um, and, and standard financial products really aren't designed to help those problems, um, although banks are innovating more and more now, um, to, especially to help um, small farmers. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, if you look at what, what we would regard as a standard product, like a mortgage um, or a, an overdraft, um, those, those are just not particularly useful in, in the same context um, that we would use them to, to people who've, you know, who have very different lifestyles and very different business needs. Okay. Yeah. And, and so kind of at the core of what you've built so far seems to be these VSLAs. And you've had this partnership with the nonprofit CARE, who I think spearheaded VSLAs or setting those up. Can you, can you talk more about that? Sure, yes. Yeah. So Village Savings and Loans Associations are one flavour of savings group. Um, and CARE, as you said, was um, absolutely pioneering. In fact, we've, we've just hit the 30-year anniversary of formalising these savings groups, which CARE first did in Niger. In, um, in West Africa. Um, and, and what these groups are, are they're in, in the sort of formalised sense, they're something that has been around for a long time anyway. Um, and organisations like CARE have, have helped them to, um, to, to be more um, robust by formalising the processes, but they, you know, they were around before CARE as well. And what happens is basically a group of usually mostly women, although men are allowed to join as well, self-select each other um, to get together and put a little bit of money in a savings pot each week. And there are lots and lots of rules about what they must do and what they must not do. Um, so it's quite a formalised arrangement, even though it's it's all done informally and outside the formal financial system. And they can use this pot of money to, to issue small loans to members of that group. Um, there are officers in the group as a secretary, a treasurer, um, and a chairperson um, who have three keys to the box of money. Um, and only they are allowed to put money in, take money out, count it, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so very formalised rules. But of course, in in many of these communities, most of the women are um, functionally literate and numerically very low literacy, um, as well as technically literate. Um, so, there, there has to be a lot of trust in these groups, and that's why they have very strict rules because mm-hmm. they have to trust each other. Um, so, so yeah, and um, a few years ago when we'd actually already launched a product in Denmark supporting micro-businesses here, um, CARE came along and said, well, we, we think what you've got is, is perfect for our savings groups. And we did, we did launch the first savings group product in partnership with them, um, although we're now working with, with other NGOs in other countries. And, um, and that really was the sort of the nexus of our first technology platform for Africa, although we always intended to go into Africa. Um, that was really the the thing that enabled us to to enter the market. Um, so we have a huge huge debt of gratitude to Care, um, and also huge um, huge respect for their pioneering vision. Um, all those thirty years ago, going into a country like Niger, which is you know the poorest country in the world, and looking at these savings groups and really realizing what the opportunity was, 
And now there are anything upwards of 50 million savings groups in Africa. Oh, wow. So it's it's extraordinary how, how successful it's been. And it wasn't just care, other NGOs have, have been doing it as well. Um, but I mean, if you go to a country like Tanzania, um, in the capital Dar es Salaam, I think 98% of adults are in a savings group. Wow. <laughs> so you don't have to be poor to be a savings group member. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it's really, really taken off. Okay. And so, so yeah, you had this partnership with Karen that, that helped enable you to, to build this, this core product. Is that, can you? Yeah, that's right. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's a technically advanced product designed for people who've got very little literacy um, or technical literacy. Um, so it was, it was quite an interesting challenge for us because the, the back end is a blockchain based um, core platform. Um, which is effectively a, a little mini fund manager that sits behind each savings group. Yeah. Um, but of course, our customers don't understand blockchain, and we don't ask them to or expect them to. Yeah. Um, as far as yeah. they're concerned, it you know it does the sums and it 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 does all of their their transactions that they need to do within the savings group, um, so that they can rely on numbers that are coming out of the system. They know how much money they've got. Um, you know the fundamentals that are really important to them. Um, but because, of course, in, in Niger and other parts of rural Africa, um, most of the women don't possess a phone or any kind of device. Um, we also built it so that it could be operated on a minimum of one device per group so that everyone everyone can have an account, everyone can have an identity, and everyone can build a digital record without needing a phone themselves. And, and that, I think, is one of our key sort of differentiations. Um, we, we really are supporting the, the people with the least opportunity in the world. Um, and helping them to build up a digital history um, so that they can prove who they are and prove they're reliable and get access to the things that we take for granted. Yeah, so that's kind of your your differentiator is is how advanced the technology is that you've built, how you're able to make it work in these contexts that that are more difficult. Is that is that right? Can you expand a little bit more on on kind of the key features of what you've built? Yes, absolutely. So, um, I mean, it, it, you know, we're not unique in that we've we've engineered the product to work with very poor connectivity and very few, very little signal, um, because anyone who works in rural Africa will have done the same thing. Right, right. Um, but but what is different is that you know, coming from a background of, of building international banking systems, we've built something that is is very robust and scalable, and is is effectively an alternative financial infrastructure for Africa. Um, to support areas that really don't have access to what we'd regard as normal financial infrastructure. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's you could, could call it DeFi, you could say it's part of this new decentralised financial um, system that, that's getting so much hype at the moment. And, and to an extent it is, but actually that's not why we're doing it that way. We're doing it because Africa has no infrastructure in, in rural areas and, and that's you know that that for us is the key. I'm you know I'm an infrastructure person. I I like shiny things. Um, yeah. So even though, even though it's software, we really we really see it as an infrastructure uh, platform. And then, as you say, you know we we have to meet the specific challenges and demands of, of dealing with groups who who have very low literacy, very little connectivity, and and may not have used a device at all before. And and those challenges we we overcome in partnership with the people we're working with on the ground, who are the NGOs, the civil society organisations, etc. Um, and we rely very heavily on the trust that they've built up with these these groups to you know to help us to introduce something which is unfamiliar, um, but has a level of familiarity about it because we build on existing social structures. Um, we don't we don't try and teach 
you know, teaching old dog new tricks. Um, we use what the, the strengths of the social bonds that exist already, mm-hmm. and help them help them really to monetize those bonds. Um, so it's it's all about digitizing existing social bonds and existing social structures, and helping them to be rewarded for compliant behaviors which are already there. Um, and I find when you you know the, the, the thing that doesn't land well when you build any new software, and I've been doing this for a very long time. Um, is trying to change people's behaviors. <laughs> right, right. That's the difficult bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So instead of trying to do that, you're you've created a product that just helps helps work with existing behaviors. That's great. Yeah, and, and we're working with existing social structures, which is really important to us as well. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, for example, um, I mean, I'm sure you know about the financial revolution in China, where you know Ant Financial and WeChat Pay have enabled you know, hundreds of millions of Chinese to to enter into what we would call financial inclusion. Mm-hmm. But they've done it as, as individuals. And that has really, in many cases, damaged the sort of traditional social structures of communities. And particularly in rural areas, it's been quite devastating. And something that we see in Africa is that these, these social s- structures are, are really, really important to, you know, maintaining communities, keeping people within the community and helping them to help each other. And especially when you've got the impact of climate change, it, it also hitting these communities at the same time. You know, the, the risk is that particularly the youth will go off and join jihadist groups and, um, you know, it, it, society can disintegrate very quickly if you don't have those sort of social bonds and social structures, um, especially when people are very poor. So you've built this product that does have all of these location-specific requirements, but you also have to have this really advanced technological backend. So can you share any learnings from that process of, of building this product? Sure. So, I mean, when we, when we started building it all those years back, we we always set out to build it as a service-oriented architecture. And by that, I mean that we have a, a services backend, which is consumed by the front end. Um, and, you know, we do have these, these two products, um, but actually the services that they consume are the same. Um, the, the, the cooperatives product is a bit more sophisticated to look at because it's run by cooperatives managers who tend to be, you know, first of all, they have more sophisticated needs. And secondly, they, um, they tend to be more literate. But, but sitting behind that, we have, you know, the, the blockchain structure, we have the reputation engine, uh, we have identity services and all the things that you would expect to see in a, in a standard software platform. And that is, you know, the, the ultimate goal of that is to have all of the services that we create um, consumable, both by our own platform and by other platforms as well, if, if they want to use them. Um, and of course, the challenge of building that in a startup is that you've always, you know, every five minutes you're making a decision about um, building the ultimate goal versus technical debt. Um, so, you know, we're doing what every startup does in that we've We've made some short-term decisions in the past, which we are now unwinding. Mm. Um, and we're able to be, I guess, closer to our target state um, every every time we develop a new component. So we're gradually moving from, you know, what I would say was actually, to be honest, a pretty full stack approach for, for the first product to a much more um, microservices approach. Um, it'll be a long time before we get fully microservices, but... Um, we're certainly getting in that direction and and every new component we're building with API capabilities so that it can be used and consumed internally by our platform and and externally. 
Um, but that also means that we can we can build security around every component so that there is much, much less risk of a, a perimeter attack like you would get in a, a major bank, for example. Yeah. So um, are, th- are there lessons that other entrepreneurs might take from that process that you went through that you think could be important to highlight? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, to be honest, if you know, if I look back at what we did and how we did it, um, I think we we made some pretty silly decisions and we're lucky to get away with them. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly building the blockchain platform up front, I, I think it was it was important for us to prove that it worked. Um, but that was a huge investment and you know it was it was quite difficult to keep the company going yeah. <laughs> with that level of spend. Um, I think I think looking back, I probably would have you know done the the pretty shiny bits first and then um, you know as we built confidence, um, with our customers who probably have built the, the more the more difficult technical stuff later. Um, but that, I mean, that was a decision we made it in, in partnership with Care, so it wasn't entirely silly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think on the whole, I would say if, if I was doing it again, I would start with something quick and dirty that works and looks great rather than starting with what was really, really good in engineering but didn't actually look great. Mm. Um, because, you know... I think in some ways we were lucky to be working with the customers we were working with because they were new to technology, so they didn't really know what to expect. Um, but that's quite unusual. And then generally customers are very demanding and, you know, what they what their experience is and what they see is much more important, actually, than how well it works at the back end, at least at first. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and then could you share a little bit? I saw on your website that you've separated out a software for rural farmers can can you talk a bit about that product and and why that was separated out? Well, yeah. So it's it's not really that separate, to be oh, honest. Okay. It looks different. Um, so one of the things we learned from working with the ladies in Niger is that all of these groups are commercial entities. Um, they they work together. They buy um, raw materials or they grow stuff. They they process it and they sell it. Um, and that's a really important part for each of these communities. Um, but what we also saw is that at a macro level, these groups get together um, and the, the more they the more they pool their resources, the more they aggregate what they've got, um, the more successful they can be commercially and the more formalised they become. And what we saw in Niger was that some groups of groups were becoming uh, microfinance institutions, um, you know, actually formally lending to other groups. Um, and we also saw them becoming agricultural cooperatives. Um, so developing the cooperative tool was really more of a response to people moving along this sort of sliding scale between what I would say is very informal <clears throat> at the savings group end towards much more formal at the cooperatives end. And you've got different types of groups in the middle, which are sort of agricultural collectives and things like that. So um, <clears throat> it was really a response to what we observed in the market. And also another observation which was that the, the the communities don't just need access to finance to be successful. Um, one of the real problems that these groups have is inefficient markets, and um, and by creating these uh, you know these crop forecasting and um, visibility of the goods that they were producing. Um, it actually helps them to reach markets much more efficient, efficiently. It helps the buyers to see what goods are going to be available. Um, and it really solves what, what shouldn't be a problem at all, but really is. Um, <clears throat> I mean, if I use an example, um, in Niger, I was I visited a, a dairy cooperative where they had um, something like 800 primary producers uh, bringing their milk to the dairy. 
<clears throat> to be tested and processed and, and turned into yogurt or whatever. Um, and, and that was great. You know, it was all working brilliantly. They had, um, you know, all the equipment they needed. They had all the, all the people doing the work and the network of people on, on motorbikes going out and buying milk, sometimes in exchange for grain from the producers. Um, but the problem came when they wanted to take the product to the to the city, which wasn't very far away. It was about 20 kilometers to the capital city, Niamey, um, where there's a, a huge demand for dairy products, but they just didn't see it. You know, there was no, there's no infrastructure that says, um, you know, there's no Amazon that says, OK, this shop is going to want uh, 50 litres of milk today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually reaching the market was was really difficult for them and they were throwing product away. Um, even though there was demand in the city, um, so so we we really learned from that as well. And and what we see in especially places like Mozambique, where we're working with um, with cashew farmers, is that this lack of visibility also means that they can't access export markets um, because there's no there's no ability from the cooperative level to to show the export markets. Yep, we've got um, 250 tons of of cashews coming in at this point in time from our farmers. Um, so. <clears throat> and, and export markets are really important for crops like cashew, um, but even for domestic product, it's very difficult to shift product if you've got no visibility of where the buyers are. Um, so, so that was one of the key features that we built in quite early in the co-ops uh, app, and that's proving incredibly, incredibly popular with a huge variety of different um, different actors in the ecosystem. Wow, that's great that you were able to build that in. Um, that seems amazing <laughs> well i mean to be honest it's it's just data as far as we're concerned <clears throat> because our reputation system measure, measures commitments that people make and whether they've met them that's what it does right and then it calls them on that basis <clears throat> so that commitment can of course be you know did i take out a loan did i pay it back um it can be did i turn up to my savings group and put you know 50 naira in the pot um or it could be um you know did i make a forecast that i would deliver 50 kilos of cashew and did i meet that commitment Right. That makes sense. Okay. So, and you've built a team, you're working um, in numerous countries and and you've built a team that's in numerous countries. Can you share about that process of of building and managing a a global team? Yeah, sure. Well, it's it's, it's partly accidental and it's partly because that's kind of how I've worked for the last 25 years anyway. So since before 2000, I was, I mean, I had 54 countries in my portfolio at the city and I was running virtual teams, I mean, before that at UBS. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, <clears throat> I guess I was one of your early virtual teams um, running people uh, over a chat channel. Um, in fact, I remember once going to a Christmas party at UBS when I'd been uh, running a project out of Paris uh, for the last few months and bumped into someone who said, you're not a person, you're a chat channel. Because that's before we had Zoom, of course. Yeah. Anyway, um, so so yeah, it was kind of natural for me, but also because um, of the way that we set up the business. So when I had the idea for Hive Online, I was working at Nordia, which is a, a, a Nordic bank, the biggest bank in the Nordics. And I was advising them on how to rebuild their bank because that's what I used to do for a living. And I, I persuaded them to put me on this um, future fintech course that MIT were running. Um, which was a little bit disingenuous of me because I knew I wanted to, to do something in this space, but I wasn't quite sure what. Um, and at the same time, I was writing a book about you know what needed to happen and what should be happening. Um, and as a result of this fintech course, I decided that the only way to actually make something happen was to do it myself. But on this course, I also met my co-founder, um, Matt Mims, who is another Brit, but he's actually based in Sweden. 
Um, so we got together and I, you know, we recognized that we had a common set of values and a, a shared vision. Um, and he, he does many of the things that I don't do particularly well. Um, I'm, I'm more of the sort of long vision person. He's more of the let's get shit done now guy. So, you know, that works very well between the two yeah. of us. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, we actually have a very similar background, although he's 20 years younger than me, because he also came out of banking and also came out of um, transformation and technology. Um, so we are, we're, we're a very techie team on the whole. Um, but yeah, so he lives in Sweden. So we, you know, from the outset, we started as a multi-country team. Um, and it just seemed natural to hire people where we, you know, wherever they were, the best talent was found. Um, we were also working with international uh, teams, um, helping us with the blockchain side of things as well. Um, and then when we decided to pursue African markets um, completely um, and really ditch the Danish product, which was a great relief to us, to be honest, um, it, it became obvious that, you know, hiring programmers in Denmark and Sweden would not really work for African markets because, you know, if you t- if you tell a, a Danish programmer, um, okay, you, your customer has very poor signal, probably gets dropped several times a minute, and they can't read. The, a Danish programmer won't understand the customer at all. Um, whereas in Africa, of course, you hire African programmers who have been working on these problems already, um, who come from backgrounds, you know, that, you know, even, okay, we've had some, some fairly sophisticated urban guys um, but some of our programmers actually come from um, very rural situations. One is a Somali refugee. Um, you know, they understand the customer because they've been there. Um, and that just makes all the difference um, when you're building software, because there's no point in building fantastic software if it's no use to the customer. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I chose Kigali because I well, I love Kigali anyway. It's a lovely place, but um, it's also it's very business friendly. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a it's a growing tech hub, um, and they've you know they they are relatively progressive in terms of their, um, I guess things like sandboxes and you know regulatory stuff. Um, but but just that they are trying to be you know the Singapore of Africa. Um, so it, it seems like a good place in terms of longevity as well. Yeah, great. So you have this amazing high impact business. Can we talk about how how it actually makes money? How what your business model is? Yeah, sure. So um, obviously our customers are pretty poor, so we we can't make a great deal of money out of them. Um, but what we do, um, our, our strongest relationship is actually with the lenders. So our core business model is taking two percent out of any loans that go to our groups from the lenders. Um, so we cut the cost of lending to them so much um, and, and indeed um, introduce lenders to customers they couldn't otherwise reach um, that to them that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty cheap price to pay. Um, so it's a, a very, in many ways, very easy relationship with the lenders um, because, you know, they get 50,000 new customers and we get 2% of all of their loans. But we are a data business and we're, we are also um, looking at ways to, to monetize the data that we are sharing with um, with the merchants, um, so we'll be taking a, an introduction fee there as well. But something that's come up recently, which um, we we sort of knew about, but we hadn't really thought about as much as we should have been, is vouchers, um, because of course NGOs spend something like seventeen percent of their donations on cash and voucher distribution, 
And there is huge demand for vouchers in a huge number of different situations. Um, because, of course, it's safer than cash. Because if you've got a voucher, especially if it's based on blockchain, you can only redeem it for certain things. And you can trace who's got it and who's had it and who's getting it. Um, so it, it's it's a really ideal um, vehicle for the technology. Um, and, of course, um, organisations like NGOs, but also governments, spend a fortune on voucher distribution, um, which is it's really difficult to do well and is subject to a lot of corruption um, and, you know, has all these, these, these problems associated with either paper or card vouchers, which are the, the typical solutions nowadays. Um, so having a, an asset free voucher, which exists on the blockchain, but has no physical um, component is, uh, is, I think, quite transformational for many of the organizations we're working with as well. And it also means that people, again, without devices can own these assets and prove that they own them without having to have a phone, without having to have a particular card, um, because they, um, you know, because of the, the, the way that blockchain technology works, and then they can redeem them at the point of, uh, of delivery. Um, so it's, it cuts out a lot of costs for everyone, which, of course, again, means that we can monetize that aspect of the business as well. Yeah, great. And when you mentioned how 2% is a lot less than other, I mean, that does sound really good compared to other options. Can you talk about whatever alternatives are out there? Uh, how much better is that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if we look at the the, I mean, the highly ethical lenders we worked with in Niger, um, their typical APR was about 24%, which was oh, wow. ext- extremely good. Um and that's you know that's partly to do with risk. It's partly to do with logistics. Partly to do with cost of cost of their cost of capital. Um, but if you look at a, an informal local lender, um, they can be charging as much as six hundred percent APR. What? Um, oh my yeah. gosh! So wow. and, and it's it's often it's not even like you know it's not even like the lenders are really creaming off a lot um because often they'll be giving very short-term loans of sort of like ten dollars for a week mm. and then they've got all the costs associated with collections they've got all right. the costs all the risks associated with um you know moving money around I and mean, especially if you're in a conflict zone moving money around is extremely expensive because you've got to send an armed guard with it um mm. so so this again is another reason why they often can't even reach these customers because you know, if you're lending ten dollars to to Fatima, who's you know wants to to you know buy some seeds for her farm, and she's forty kilometers from the nearest road, it's just not worth it. You right. know, you're not going to make a profit out of that as a financial institution. Um, so this this is where this sort of digital KYC and and digital risk assessment is really important for them as well. Yeah. Wow. So so is that what do you think? Is that two percent that you're talking about? Is that going to be a sustainable business model for you long term, or are you going to really need that to figure out that data piece? I I, I feel that the and again this is a feel at the moment rather than a no, but yeah, um, I've been in this business a long time, and I do feel that the data will eventually be our, our biggest revenue line. Hmm. Um, I think that you know there is so much opportunity. If you think about the use case, say you've got you know CEO of Unilever coming out and saying. Um, I am going to make sure that everyone in my value chain is paid a living wage. He can't prove that, but we can. Oh, yeah. So, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, we can measure the last, you know, what we've got is last mile data, which is is very, very rare. Um, and it's last mile data, which is relevant to the ESG goals of, of major corporations. Um, but, but also, as I said, it smooths the, the whole value chain. So it means the farmer gets more revenue, yes. But it also means that, you know, all the way up to, 
you know, you as a consumer buying a packet of coffee off a shelf, um, you know, you have that confidence that the coffee came from a woman farmer in wherever and um, and that she's getting a, a decent wage for her her, um, her, her crop. Um, yeah. and coffee farming is hugely subject to um, to corruption, especially in the, the sort of the, le- the lower end of the, um, of the of the equation, because you know you get small farmers delivering their their cherries to the the processing plant, and they they can't see what quality it is, so the processing plant can basically say whatever they like. Um, so just injecting a few behaviour loops and and validations into those value chains can really help the farmers. Um, and uh, by the way, did you know that um, most of the people who buy coffee are women? Um, that, that probably won't surprise you. Most of the people who grow coffee are also women. Well, that probably will surprise you. Right. Okay. Yeah. Most of the people who grow coffee are women. Yeah, so if you, I know that. If, if you saw from your coffee that you, you know, this coffee was grown by a woman farmer, would that make you more likely to buy it? Yes. Yeah. And and that's true for about ninety eight percent of female purchasers. Huh. So, so that sort of thing is quite important for the guys who are putting the stuff in packets as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, I'm. It'll be interesting to follow your progress with that. <laughs> um, so, what do you see as the biggest challenges ahead for advancing fintech solutions and continuing to reach more individuals with access to financial services? Um, so, <clears throat> I think I think it's. We've got a huge challenge coming up. I mean, it, you know, there's challenges we have today, which are all about reaching customers' connectivity. You know, all the things I've, I've talked about, literacy and mm-hmm. stuff, which you know, they're problems to be solved. Um, and they, as as technology is getting more advanced and as connectivity is gradually getting better across Africa, that that makes life a little bit easier for us. Um, uh, some of the things that you might think of barriers, which really aren't so things like different languages and stuff which you know although we're we're now in seven languages um and you know across countries in you know everywhere from Honduras to Mozambique um that's actually been less of a problem for us I one of the things I see coming up which I think is going to be a huge challenge not just for us but for um for people in the space for entrepreneurs in the space and for existing financial institutions and telcos um is the emergence of global um, payment solutions like um, this, what used to be called Libra is now M that Facebook has been working on with a, a consortium of other um, corporations and a few NGOs. Um, they're proposing to issue a US dollar-based stablecoin, um, which will be coming out next, well, probably this year. Um, and then, of course, you've got China issuing its own central bank digital currency. Um, and I think that those are, between them, the biggest threats to um really all of the, the payments activities and all of the fintech that's going on in, in um, Africa in particular at the moment, but also across um, Asia Pacific and many other areas. Um, because if you think about it, Ant Financial, which is um, China's huge financial success, fintech success, has 1.3 billion customers already. Um, Facebook has 2.7 billion customers already. Um, and they've been hoovering up customers with Facebook Free Basics across Africa for by about over a hundred thousand, sorry, over a hundred million a year for the last few years. Um, so that that is, you know, that is a technology that's in everyone's hands already. And when you introduce a wallet where you can get an, an e-dollar or an e-yuan in that wallet, um, which is more stable than your national currency, I think that's going to be a real threat to solutions like ours and to um, to national um, currency sovereignty as, as well. 
um, in these countries. So for me, that I think is the is the biggest risk that we and you know the, the finance industry faces in, in developing economies. Yeah. And what do you see as kind of the biggest downsides of that happening as far as for the people that you're lending to? Well, it's, I mean, it's a really good question because, you know, it, on the surface, it, giving um, people access to um, e- easily accessible foreign currency when your own currency is not very stable is actually great um, because it means that they can, you know, they can have a store of value that's in a, a stable currency. Um, but when you, you extrapolate that to the sort of macro level, um, what it means is that these countries, which already have very um, shallow financial systems and very shallow capital markets will lose even more of a grasp of, of their own ability to control their monetary policy and their fiscal policy. Right. Um, and I, you know, I was talking to some guys at UNICEF in, um, in Pacific Islands the other day, and they were saying, you know, these countries are so small, central banks are not going to be able to do anything about this. Um, and, you know, we were actually saying, well, actually, rather than the E1, you know, maybe we should go with the Aussie dollar or the New Zealand dollar, because that might be a bit better. Um, but, but, you know, there's there's already a growing acknowledgement that some currencies are just going to die. Wow. Um, and I think that that's a real risk across Africa as well, possibly not in the bigger countries, um, but um, certainly in some of the more more fragile countries. Um, you know, there's already been a lot of investment um, from the Chinese and, of course, the Americans were there already as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it, in some in some ways, it's sort of a continuation of, of what's been going on historically. I mean, after all, you know, uh, Africa, like many other places, has had a long history of colonization by everyone who can get there. Um, but it's it, it's worrying. Um, so we're, we're trying to, you know, we're, we're doing what we can on the ground to help communities and help communities stick together. And um, and we're also helping um, with some advice to regulators on what you know what they can do. Um, so it's not it's not a completely hopeless situation, but I think it's you know if you ask me what the biggest threat is, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So what's next for Hive Online? What are you hoping to accomplish over, let's say, the next five years? Right. Well, <laughs> five years is a long time. Um, yeah. <laughs> Okay, two years. <laughs> so, so yeah, well, five, well, let's let's go for five years. So, um, I mean, we're already in um, in Mozambique, Zambia, um, Honduras, and we're about to go into Nigeria and Kenya, which obviously are both quite big countries. We're seeing quite a lot of pull from Uganda as well, so that's another potential country to go into. Mm. Um, and and that's really just sort of you know in the next eighteen months, um, continuing to do, deliver the components that will make our platform more useful, um, more monetizable, more scalable, etc. And that's primarily working with um, with primary producers and their their commercial ecosystem all the way up to the the, the big buyers. Um, but then going forward, something that I've started to see more demand for and, and really is very, very close to my heart is to start um, creating different alternative value tokens. So currencies that are based around digital assets, such as nat- or sorry, nat- natural assets, um, such as crops and, um, you know, and also obviously the old carbon that everyone wants. And then also what, I, what I'd really like to see, and I think we're getting there, is um, is, is value-based social assets. So digital assets that um, that tokenize social bonds, social values, and commitments, which obviously is what our our, our um, reputation engine does already. So that these communities can not only leverage the you know the fact that they are they have got strong social bonds, which which we're helping them to do already, 
um, but also start to monetize those in much more concrete ways. Um, because I think, you know, if you've got Unilever saying, I want to prove these people are getting a living, living wage, that is a social contract. Um, and if we can monetize that and help people to um, to realize value from their strong social bonds um, in a much more concrete way, I think that that will really help to benefit the, the communities that we're supporting. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. But I have to admit, my head's having a hard time wrapping itself around that concept. Okay, well, the thing, the thing about social uh, social value and, and social rewards in, in this way. Um, so you probably actually have a fairly, I don't know how large, probably because none of us have been flying recently, but um, you probably have a store of a social currency somewhere, and that's your air miles. And your air miles are a social contract that you have entered into with your uh, with your um, various airlines. Right. That says, you know, we'll reward you with this if you do if you behave in a way that we want you to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very you know clear example of something that is a you know you get value for behaving in a way that we like. Um, you, you could get the same thing with um, you know when you turn an ad blocker off so that you you get the ads on a website. Um, you know, that's your social bond with that website that says, okay, you can use my eyes as a, a point of value, as a, as, as, you know, as clickbait for your, for your ads in order for me to consume your content. And that's you paying for that content with a social contract. So the, if you start thinking about it in those terms, it's not actually that complicated. Right, right. But you're finding <laughs> a way to do that as far as how, how they're interacting as a community. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Wow. So this has been really great, Sophie. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about what you've been doing and excited to follow your progress over the next few years. And I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been great talking to you. Um, Yeah, great honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Impact Drivers. Make sure to visit our website at impactdrivers.io where you can subscribe to the podcast. I'm looking for feedback as I continue to build out the show. Have any thoughts on what you liked or haven't liked? Email me at jen at impactdrivers.io. Join us next time for a chance to be inspired and learn from the entrepreneurs daring to build the hard businesses that create a better world.